Matthew chapter 20. <clears throat> We're entering the Advent season. That's the four-week season of remembering and celebrating the arrival of Jesus on earth, concluding with his nativity, which means the occasion of his birth on Christmas Day. So that's what we'll be celebrating these four Sundays. Um, any celebration, though, requires some understanding that we know what it is we're celebrating. Why is Jesus coming into the world a good thing? Uh, why is that better than Cyber Monday deals <laughs> and Toyotathon and all the other things that are coming our way right now? Uh, we need a reason for the season. So this Advent season, we're going to give our, our attention to four passages that explain why Christ came into the world. They're from Jesus himself. We're going to take one passage from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus tells us, why did I come into the world? That's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the Advent from his perspective. We'll start with Matthew 20, verses 17 to 28. So that's what we'll be reading. Would you follow along with me as we read from God's Word? And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. <clears throat> we ask your help, Lord, today to tune in our ears to what you want to say to us. Like these disciples, they needed a, a little talking to. They needed a lesson. They needed to have their, their um, minds reoriented to what matters and to what especially Christ did for us 
why he came into the world. So we ask for that same miracle to happen this morning, that you give us illumination. It's your desire to do that. You've provided us your Holy Spirit so that we can know, so that we can know you and your ways and follow them. And so, Lord, accomplish that miracle again this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in high school, I played on the varsity baseball team my senior year, which was not hard to do in a small school where only nine or ten people volunteered for the team that needs nine people. <laughs> it was a small high school. The coach assigned me to second base, which is a position that I never really learned, and eventually he switched me to center field. And I remember distinctly one practice where I think the decision was made to switch me to center field. <clears throat> the coach was hitting ground balls to me as at second base, and I was fielding him badly, really badly. Uh, and he was getting impatient. And the last straw was when he hit one to me that was right exactly towards me. And I went down to get it, and I didn't go down far enough, and it went right under my legs and out into the field. And that's when he lost it. <laughs> he just jumped up and down on home plate and banged the bat on the ground and was screaming at me <laughs> because I just couldn't learn what he was trying to teach me. Well, the cast of characters around Jesus in our passage was in a similar situation. They just couldn't get what Jesus was trying to tell them. Specifically, they never really understood what he was all about and why he came into the world, at least not until after his resurrection. No matter how many times he tried to make it clear to them. See, this passage begins with Jesus making this clear declaration about what's about to happen to him when he goes down to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. He says in no uncertain terms, the Son of Man, meaning himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. He will be mocked and flogged and crucified, though he would also be raised. That sounds pretty clear, what's going to happen, right? Can't get much clearer than that. I'm going to Jerusalem, I will be killed, and this isn't the first time that he said it. This is actually the third time in Matthew's Gospel that he records Jesus saying that very thing. So you'd think the gravity of that would land on the disciples. That they would be asking Jesus, why is this going to happen? And what should we do about it? And should we even be going to Jerusalem if that's the way things are going to go down? But no, they don't ask any of those questions. It was like my coach hitting ground balls to me. They just couldn't get it. Instead, everybody in the narrative except Jesus has their mind on other things, as if his death wasn't even going to happen. We're going to see what they had their minds on as, they, as we walk through the passage. And we're going to see ourselves in this picture because this is common to the human condition. And it's deeper than just ignorance of what Jesus was about. There's a reason for the ignorance. And then we'll hear how Jesus says things are going to be different among those who follow him, that he calls us to a new and fruitful way of life, and then he'll finish with the reason why he came into the world and what was going to transform them. 
So here's the first observation of the passage. It's about the condition of the human heart. We naturally desire greatness for ourselves. We naturally desire great for greatness for ourselves. That's what seems to occupy the minds of everybody in the situation. It's what stands in the way of them comprehending what Jesus told them about his coming crucifixion. It begins with the mother. The mother of the two disciples, James and John. So she comes with her boys and has a little conference with Jesus. And, and she has a request of Jesus. Verse 21, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, now what exactly is she asking for? What's she thinking here in this request? Well, she has the hope that any Jew had in those days, which was relief from the Roman occupation. They had the hope of the Old Testament scriptures that one day, a son of David, a descendant of David, would regain the throne and free Israel from all of its enemies and usher in this new era of peace and prosperity like the nation once did under David and Solomon. And she's fully confident Jesus is that deliverer. He's the one. He's the son of David who's soon going to be in charge. And since he'll be in charge, he's going to need lieutenants. He's going to need a right-hand man and a left-hand man to lead things. And as any good mother does, she thinks very highly of her sons. <laughs> Who could possibly deserve places of honor more than her boys, James and John? After all, they were in the first batch of men that Jesus called to be his disciples. Surely he must have seen some promising quality there, some, some gifting for leadership. There, there had to be a reason that they were in the, the first batch. There's quality there. He must see it. And he even gives them a nickname. They're the sons of thunder. That sounds impressive. Uh, who knows? Maybe that's just a recognition of their impactful character. You know, you can't really ignore thunder. These guys have it going on. They've got some impact. Some quality here. Yes, good, good, good guys to, to pick for your left-hand man, your right-hand man. So, Jesus, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. There's a, this is a mom who has high aspirations for her boys. And probably not without some hope that if her sons are in such a high-ranking position in the new order... She and her husband Zebedee will not fare too badly either. I mean, if you got high-ranking sons, you probably will be taken care of a lot better than fishing can do for you. So she's probably got a little bit of that going on. Certainly not wrong for a parent to want her children to do well. But here's the thing. It's juxtaposed right after Jesus' declaration that he's going to die. And that makes it stand out as inappropriate and out of touch with what's really going on right here. Why are you thinking about their future and yours instead of the implications of Jesus' crucifixion? Well, we can ask the same question of the sons because it appears they've actually talked about this 
they, they've talked about this around the dinner table, it seems like, because they come also with this question. In fact, one of the other Gospels leaves out the mother altogether. It's the two boys who come saying this. Um, they're in agreement with their mom. We should be left hand and right hand. Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they, James and John, said, we are able. We are qualified to do this. They have no clue what's about to go down. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. But they're very sure that whatever it is, they can handle this position of leadership in the new kingdom. What about the other disciples? How do they fare in the account? Verse 24 says, When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. This is like a playground scene, you know, where one kid says to the other, You think you're better than me? <laughs> and they get all mad, you know, kind of bump chests. You think you're better than me? No, I'm better than you. We naturally want to think we're better, at the very least equal to others. And in this case, <clears throat> the other ten, they feel like they're just as qualified as James and John. You shouldn't be jumping over us. You know, we've got the same level of ability as you do. We can be number one and number two. So what's the common denominator in all these responses? What's going on here? I think it exposes something that's common to everyone, which is that we naturally desire greatness for ourselves. It's natural to want that. We want to think we're important, that our needs and wants come before everybody else's, that we deserve to be recognized, served, esteemed. The common problem of everybody in the passage is that they're all preoccupied with self-interest, and nobody is thinking about Jesus being crucified and what that means. And that's not strange to our experience today. I like to watch football, and that means enduring commercials. And Burger King has a jingle that gets stuck in your head after several timeouts and two-minute warnings, and you know this commercial comes on. Uh, and it says, at BK, have it your way, you rule. <laughs> the jingle's going on in my head right now. It's very effective. Marketers know what they're doing. Companies spend big bucks on advertising. They tailor their marketing to tap into our inner desires and promote their product as fulfilling those, those desires, right? That's why they pay millions for people to figure out, what do people want to hear and then associate our product with fulfilling that desire. So Burger King is betting that you will go out and buy a Whopper if that means you feel like you rule. That this is what it looks like to have it your way, biting into that bacon cheeseburger, bacon double burger, whatever. Have it your way. You rule. Why do they do that? Because they know the natural human heart. We want to have it our way. <laughs> We want to think we deserve to have it our way. My needs and desires come first because I'm so important. But it doesn't take too much imagination to see where that's going to lead us in life. If everybody's thinking, I can have it my way, I rule. Because the reality is not everyone can be number one. <laughs> not everyone gets to rule. 
Someone is going to get stepped on and offended if we think we're all first. And that's exactly where we are left after this request is made to James and John or in the top positions. The, the other ten disciples are indignant, it says. Conflict is inevitable if we're trying to be number one. And that plays out in all manner of settings. It plays out in the arguments that happen in the home, all the way up to the wars between nations. This desire for greatness, for being first, for having everybody do what I want, it makes loving, enduring relationships and community impossible. Well, Jesus came to reverse that human tendency. His followers will take a different path because in his kingdom, true greatness is to become a servant. That's our next point. True, true greatness is to become a servant. After the exchange with the mother and her sons, Jesus turns the occasion into a teaching moment about what his kingdom will be like, what will mark those who follow him. He said, beginning verse 25, you know, you're familiar with how the world works. You know the, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. In other words, Jesus is saying there should be a marked contrast between your understanding of greatness and the world's understanding of greatness. The world says real greatness, when you've made it, when you're at the top, is when you get to call the shots when you make people do things for you. True greatness is when you rule. It's when you have it your way. That's lording it over, and that is natural to the kingdom of this world. But Jesus says, that's not how it will be for my disciples. We don't operate with that mindset. We have an opposite mindset. True greatness is to be the servant of others. The Greek word there is, Diakonos, from which we get our word deacon, it's a person who does something at the request of another. A person who does that is a great person in Jesus' kingdom. You do things for other people. Jesus goes even further than that. He says, if you want to be first in his kingdom, then you will be the slave of others. That word is doulos. That's an actual slave. That's a person who is bound to serve others, who has an obligation to do what other people want, want done or need done. That turns our thinking upside down because he's saying that's true greatness to be like that. That turns our natural thinking upside down. We tend to think the best case scenario for a fulfilled life is to be served by others, to have the all-inclusive vacation where the food and the activity just keep coming at you <laughs> and you don't have to do or pay anything. We might think, like, that's the ideal scenario of what life would be like if it was great. But Jesus says, actually, the best case scenario is when you are the one who serves others. It's to do what Paul would later say in Philippians, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
That's massively counterintuitive to our human nature. And so it, it deserves some explanation. Why is this a better way to live? To be a servant? Well, just starting with the obvious. Wouldn't this solve the problem of human rivalry and conflict almost immediately if everybody followed that? If we all looked out for each other's interests? If we counted others more significant than ourselves? If we counted ourselves as servants and as slaves? Wouldn't that just wipe out all the arguing, all the conflict? I mean, who has ever heard of anybody arguing over being served too well? You know? I'm angry with you because you're looking out for my interests. So stop that. That's annoying. Said no one ever. <laughs> or to the person who serves your table at the restaurant, I'm not going to give you a tip because your service was amazing. <laughs> you know, no, we don't. That doesn't happen. Just think of the environment that would be created if we took Jesus at his word and actually operated this way. If we were committed, every one of us, to the good of everyone else, to serving everyone else, and nobody is thinking, I deserve to be served, what would that be like? Well, that's what the church is supposed to be like. Listen to some of the exhortations to believers in Jesus as they gather together in community. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. God has so composed the body that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may all have the same care for one another. Encourage one another and build one another up. I'm just quoting from different one another commands in the Scriptures. And we could go on. You see what Jesus is promoting among those who follow Him? It's a restructuring of our definition of real greatness. It's to have... It isn't to have it your way and to rule. It's to take your eyes off yourself and see what needs to be done for others around you. It's to serve them. It's a countercultural community that's full of healing and comfort and restoration and wholeness as we walk through life with all of its challenges and demands and troubles. A people that are pulling together and they're for each other looking for ways that I can help. It's a beautiful thing to be a part of. And the church is where Christ is forming it, and what we want to aspire to be more and more. He says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And we should notice this is not just a call to the activity of serving others. It is an identity that we take on. You identify yourself as a servant. It's not just serve others, as in, here's something you should do sometimes. It is be their servant. Take on that mindset. This is what I am. I am a servant. It's my job description. It's my identity. It's a guiding awareness of what my life is supposed to be about. 
here's the difference that makes in real life. It means you don't assume that you're done serving for the month because you served in nursery last week or on the worship team or in counting the offering. You know how it is. I mean, you know the thought life. I have a checklist. Serving's got to be in there somewhere. Well, I'll, I'll sign up for these days and once I've done the things that I'm supposed to do on those days, I'm good. I'm, I'm done for the month. I'm a servant. Well, that's, that's serving as an activity that we fold into our lives somehow. But Jesus is talking about a mindset. He's talking about what are, how do you see yourself? Are you somebody that most of the time you can just totally indulge all of your wants and desires and have it your way and rule, but once in a while you're going to like serve somebody here and there so that you can have done that? It's not, that's not the, what he's talking about. He's talking about this mindset. I, I'm there for people. It's who I am. Now, maybe sometimes you have to say no to things. You know, when the email comes across saying, hey, we need help to move, maybe you can't. Maybe you say no to the email. But don't do it just because, well, I already served this month. <laughs> that's, not the, that's not the mindset. And if contrary, if you don't get an email, don't assume there's nothing to do. That I don't, there's no needs around me because I didn't hear about it. It's more like, okay, I'm, I'm in the community, I'm in the world, and people need things, and can I do something about it? <clears throat> this isn't about setting our own limits on what we are, will or will not do for people. It's about how we see ourselves. Are we servants, or are we just people who want to be served? Um, is doing things for others a part of our job description, our identity, or just something we do when it's convenient? And it's never convenient. It just absolutely isn't because every serving moment involves a sacrifice. You sacrificed that time, that energy, that money, that resource to do something for somebody. It is always sacrificial. It is never convenient. So we have to have a mindset of wanting to do it. Of course, we have to remember people will take advantage of serving. Some people will just want you to give and give and give and give, and they'll never stop asking. Um, and sometimes what people ask for isn't needed to be done. It shouldn't be done. So we can't just say yes to everything. Um, but Jesus isn't talking about us becoming actual slaves to people's whims. He's talking about a mindset. It's a, but this is about having a disposition. I will help if I can. I will not automatically reject a serving opportunity just because it's inconvenient for me or it costs me something. For following Jesus, those who follow him, serving isn't an interruption to your life. It's what you do with your life. And it isn't just for people who will give you something in return for serving, like your family and your friends. This is for people who may be strangers to you and people who may not be able to give you anything in return. Jesus was eating in a man's house one time, and he said something that probably surprised the guy. Because here's a guy who's inviting in this teacher, and he's being very accommodating and hospitable, and he's serving, and he's doing everything right, you know? Well, Jesus says to him in Luke 14, when you give a dinner or a banquet... Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, 
and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, don't limit your service to your family and your friends and the people that you know are going to probably reciprocate. Expand it to the people who are in the church and the people who are outside the church, people who are in trouble, people who are suffering, people who are going without, people that can't pay you back. And don't worry about it, he says, because God will repay you. (laughs) He sees, he knows, if you're doing it for him and not for the return that you get immediately, well, you're going to get a way better return later, guaranteed. Things beyond your imagination. Rewards for everything you did for his namesake. So true greatness is to be the servant of others. That's the countercultural mindset. It breathes fresh air into our human experience when you're in that environment. That's what reduces conflict. It honors the worth of every individual around me, around you. You matter. That's why we'll do this. It creates an environment where we communicate. You're valued. It meets practical needs. It eases the pain of living in a fallen world because we're being helped. We're being comforted. We're being counseled. We're being lifted up in prayer and all those things. This is what Christ is building as he's building his church. Lording it over shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Now, we haven't even addressed the underlying reason that Jesus gives for this radical shift in our thinking. Beyond a practical benefit that serving is to each other, there's a deeper reason why being a servant is true greatness. And it has to do with Jesus' example of serving others and what it was that he did to serve us. And that leads to the last point. Let me just introduce it with a question. If we go back to the beginning of the passage, the question is still hanging in the air. Why didn't anyone understand what Jesus had to say about his crucifixion? Why in the face of multiple times telling them that he would be killed in Jerusalem, why couldn't they shake off this me-first mentality? And the answer is, they needed Jesus to do something to change their fundamental natures before they could start to think and act according to the Lord's priorities and not according to their own. The last observation is this. It takes a ransom payment to change us. A ransom payment. This is how Jesus ends his teaching to the disciples I'll read verses 27 and 28 together so we can see the train of thought. He said, Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as, here comes the example, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That says two important things. First, it tells us why being a servant is true greatness is because Jesus came as the ultimate servant. God the Son in human flesh shows us what God is like. Shows us what's commendable and beautiful and right because it's a display of God's own character. And Jesus came 
to be a servant. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. If there was ever a person who could have said, I deserve to have it my way, I rule, it was Jesus. Because he actually deserves to have it his way, and he does rule. He could have exercised his authority. You need to serve me. But what did he do? He said in Luke 27, 22, 27, I am among you as one who serves. That's how he comes to us. Though he had rights, he, with, he threw away those rights so that he could serve. How did he serve? By doing the most sacrificial and most needed act of service that has ever been done in human history. The Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. This is the second and most critical lesson He leaves us with. On the cross, Jesus gave His life willingly, subjecting himself to the torture and the brutality of crucifixion as a ransom for many. Now, we need to know what a ransom is to know how this serves us. Because it's in that word ransom where we get our explanation for why nobody surrounding Jesus could break free from their self-interest and understand why he was going to die and what it meant for them. So what is a ransom? When we hear the word now, we typically associate it with kidnapping. You know, someone is taken, and then the kidnapper leaves a ransom note. Leave $1 million at this location at this time, and -and so-and-so will be returned to you. So we associate ransom with freeing an innocent person from the hands of an evil perpetrator and kidnapping. But that's our modern application of the word. But the essence of the word ransom is simply the price that's paid to release someone from captivity of whatever nature. They're in captivity of some kind, and there's a cost to free them. That's what's in the word ransom. It could be the cost of freeing someone from slavery or from imprisonment. It can also be the price paid to free someone from a death sentence. If you look back in the Old Testament, there's there's occasions for that. If somebody owns an ox and the ox gores somebody and the owner knew that was going to happen, he is liable to death, but he can be ransomed with a payment and not die. A ransom frees you. The common idea is the release of someone from captivity upon the payment of a price. And as we think about the disciples' preoccupation with their own greatness in light of Jesus' coming death, we can say they, they are in a kind of captivity that won't allow them to understand the mission of Jesus and what true greatness really is. And if we read our New Testaments, we see it's a captivity of the mind and of the heart. It's the unbreakable hold that sin has had on mankind ever since the first sin in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve decided they wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. They wanted to be first like God is, so they ate the forbidden fruit. 
And Paul describes this captivity in Romans 6, where he says, you, speaking of people before they put faith in Christ, he says, you were slaves to sin. That's our captivity. That's our natural condition. The reason we can't understand what Jesus is saying, the reason we can't go there, the reason we can't do it is because we can't keep the demands of God's laws. We can't stop sinning. We, our, our minds are corrupted ever since the fall. We inherited that from Adam. There's this inability to get it and to walk in God's ways. We're slaves to sin, naturally, inherited from Adam. It's been passed down in every generation since then. We're natural-born sinners. We live with the consequence of sin, which is death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, and it's an eternal death. It's the righteous judgment that's due to us by our disobedience to God. So how is this captivity to sin and this penalty to be dealt with? How can we be freed from it? Enter the Son of Man, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When he read from the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue in Luke 4, the beginning of his public ministry, here's how he described what he came to do. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's how salvation is described in the New Testament. It's this freeing, it's this releasing from the captivity to sin and to sin's penalty that we are under. You hear that language in there as he's reading from the scroll. And how does he free the captives? He does it by paying a ransom, which is his own life given in our place and for our sin. On the cross, Jesus died the death we deserve so that God's justice can be satisfied. But he gives us his righteousness so we can be counted blameless before God that we might be welcomed into the favor of God and into the eternal dwelling place of God and have his presence with us daily. But it took a ransom to make that happen. It took the death of the sinless one to do it. And we receive that when we put our trust in Christ as our sin bearer. And we receive his life as a ransom for us. People who know they've been ransomed don't need to be great in the world's eyes. If you've trusted Christ, then you have his favor on your life. God is looking out for you. You have eternal life waiting for you. People like that don't need to spend their whole time trying to be number one, trying to be served, using other people for our own advantage. We don't need that because we have everything in Christ. We can rest in the assurance our Savior Jesus has freed us to a new and better life. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And in the confidence of that knowledge, we can imitate Him and spend our lives in service of other people, just like He did for us. And that is a truly great life, which has its own reward in heaven.
So going back to the reason the disciples couldn't grasp what Jesus came to do, we see the natural condition of the human heart. Our problem is not just that we're ignorant, it's that we're captives, and only Jesus can free us from that captivity with the ransom of his life. I'll close with this. Why did he come into the world? Why do we celebrate his advent? The reason from this passage, the reason from Jesus' own words is he came to pay our ransom. He had to do that or we couldn't be free. But we are free if our faith is in him. Whether you feel free or not doesn't make any difference. If your faith is in Christ, you are. You have God's favor, his promises, his promise of eternal life and his presence now. And if that's true, you don't need to worry about making people do stuff for you. You can do things for them and spread some of that joy of what God has done for you and point to him while we do it. Serving others is not an interruption to our lives. It's what we do with our lives because it's what Jesus did with his life. And we're following him. So may the wonder of that truth permeate our Christmas celebrations this month and shape us more and more into the image of Christ, the ultimate servant, both in our lives and in our church. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you came to do something we didn't even need, knew needed to be done. Going about our lives thinking we can figure it out, we don't need intervention. You knew what we needed. You knew we needed a ransom payment, and you came for us, and you did it. And I pray that everyone puts their faith in this ransom. Everybody in this room right now, putting their trust in Jesus and Jesus alone and what he did for us on the cross so that we can be free from this worry and this craving to be first. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.